This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs, one of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. This episode is brought to you by Physician CEO. Finally, a business program for busy doctors just like you. Get the skills of branding, marketing, entrepreneurship, and combine those with your gifts as a physician. Be known as a doc outside the box and define your future. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. Welcome to Docs Outside the Box Podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry. You're getting real live insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. What's good, everyone? Welcome back. And we are on to day two of the Docs Outside the Box Virtual Summit. Now, if you didn't get a chance to listen to yesterday's episode, make sure you jump on that. Day one, we featured Dr. Carmen Brown, and we talked about how she left the United States to practice in New Zealand as well as Australia. And she's been practicing there for the past 10 years and how that move both revitalize her career as well as her mental well-being. I'm telling you, you don't want to miss this one. Make sure you go back and check it out and share that episode with someone who you know is struggling with possibly maybe moving overseas and not sure if they can get past those mindset things that hold us back. So make sure you take a listen to that episode. But now I think it's pretty hard to say that you can't really talk to anyone who's really forward-thinking and not hear the concepts from a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. If you haven't heard this book, you are missing out. Rich Dad, Poor Dad is a book that was written by Robert Kiyosaki back in 1997, and it told the story of his two dads, okay? One being his real father, who is Poor Dad, and the other being the father of his best friend, known as Rich Dad. And in this book, he shares how both men have shaped his thoughts on money as well as investing. And the huge takeaway from this, the huge concept takeaway from this book is you don't need to earn a high income to be rich. Make sure you understand that. You don't need a high income to be rich. Rich people, they make money work for themselves. Okay. And it's safe to say that since this book has come out, since people really started to understand this book, a lot of people have learned to, I'd say, detach themselves from their nine to five and really start to use real estate as well as investing to create wealth, not just for them, but also for their future generations. And this is where my next guest steps in. This is where Dr. Peter Kim, who has been doing this for some time now, you're going to hear his thought process, his mindset shifts that he had to do. Now, he's been on the show, so I'd like to call him an OG also. He runs the famous blog called Passive Income MD as well as curbside real estate, which is a concierge service for physicians looking to buy, purchase real estate. And also just came off recently, I got to give him props for this, recently came off a successful Passive Income MD conference held in October of 2019. And early in his career, he found out that keeping all of his eggs in one basket, and he's an anesthesiologist, was not going to get him the wealth, was not going to get him the family life balance that he wanted. 
So he had to make a hard left. And he's on this show right now. He's on this episode to really help me parse through a recent interview that real estate investor Grant Cardone had on Vlad TV. If you haven't heard of Vlad TV, Vlad TV is a very popular YouTube channel focused on the news and hip hop. And every now and then he gets to interview someone who's really controversial. This time it was Grant Cardone. And in this interview, Grant Cardone talked about his childhood. He talked about how he got started in real estate and how he quickly multiplied that into a huge real estate holding where now he's considered a real estate mogul. I'd say it's a very polarizing interview. His personality is safe to say is very polarizing also. But if you go to the show notes, the interview is embedded in there for you to watch. So me and Dr. Peter, we're going to parse through this interview. There's a lot of concepts here, but we make it in a way that's easily digestible. And then make sure you all are registered for this summit, dotbsummit.com. Share this episode with someone who you know would benefit. And this is a pretty long intro, so let's get on with this interview. Dr. Peter Kim, the name, the myth, the legend behind Passive Income MD. What's good, man? How you doing? Welcome to Docs Outside the Box. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You've been on this show multiple times. So we're going to be talking about real estate. We're going to be talking about something that is kind of controversial. So recently I watched this video and I think you saw it also with Grant Cardone, you know, real estate, I guess, quote unquote, mogul real estate investor who's really made a name for himself with his books, 10X, with his you know, YouTube presence. Um, but recently he was on Vlad TV and Vlad TV is a YouTube channel where they talk mainly to hip hop artists, people who are within the hip hop culture in terms of economics, in terms of artists, musics, and so forth. And he decided to have Grant Cardone on the show to kind of talk about, you know, real estate and his thoughts on real estate. And Vlad, who is the host of the show, is really big into stocks, which obviously Grant Cardone is not into. But it kind of just went into an interesting conversation about real estate stocks and all those different things. So I wanted to have you on the show to kind of talk about all of this and get your thoughts on it, because you've seen the video and kind of just parse this down for the audience and let them understand what are the important things they should take away from a video like this. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. I mean, Grant Cardone, I've known about him for a while, ever since I started getting into real estate. He's a funny guy. I mean, he has a lot of interesting ideas and he's not afraid to tell it like, at least he feels it. And I believe that. It doesn't mean everything that he says I believe in or follow, but in terms of a mindset stuff, especially with the 10X stuff. I mean, if you haven't read his book, I think it's pretty powerful. And it got me thinking, regardless of whether you're thinking about real estate, whether you think about your life, family goals, financial goals, the whole idea of 10Xing, which is like, everyone thinks way too small. I mean, everyone thinks, okay, here's the next achievable goal. And you want to make your goal like, ah, just close enough that you can really achieve it without worrying too much about fear of failure. But what he's saying is, oh, you've got to 10X that goal. Forget about failure, forget about fear and anxiety like push for even higher than you can think you can achieve. And if you do happen to achieve a little less, at least you're way higher than when you initially started. Mm. And so that kind of mindset stuff, I love it. Yeah, I think he makes really good points. It's funny, I was hanging out with my nephew this weekend. He's, you know, in his early 20s and he was bringing up, do you know Grant Cardone? I was like, yeah, I know Grant Cardone. He's like, have you read his book 10X? I was like, no. So he actually has the book, you know, in the back of his car that he's going to take a look at and read. I want to read this book also. You know, and the thing that's really interesting is just his story, his origin story from, you know, I guess we say modest beginnings to where he is right now. It's a dramatic change and it's consistent with his book. So basically, you know, his story kind of starts off with, you know, his father, I believe, was in stocks, I believe. And his father was in stocks, but really wasn't big into real estate. His mother, you know, obviously was at home taking care of children, but his father died at an early age. 
And very quickly, the mother had to sell the home, mainly because they just couldn't afford the house anymore. And that experience really kind of just etched an area in his mind where from then he was just really was not really into, I guess, stocks as much as much as real estate. So, you know, really interesting kind of origin story. And then he kind of talked about his first foray, I guess, into real estate. And he started off, you know, in a single family house. He purchased it. He rented it out. He was doing well until someone broke the lease early and he was responsible for all these payments until he was able to find someone who could take over. And since then, he's forbade. He's never, ever gone back to single family rental units. What are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, it's a pretty powerful story. And it's not the first time I've heard that. I mean, I've heard it from a lot of different people where they, you know, even the Rich Dad Poor Dad, whole series Kiyosaki and all that stuff didn't come from relatively humble beginnings, but the real estate has grown and built like this huge empire. I tend to think kind of similar to Grant Cardone. He kind of jokes all the time. He's like, I'm stupid. He tells himself like, hey, I'm stupid. All I need is like, I just need to know the basics. I don't understand all that stock stuff. I don't understand businesses, companies, you know, all these reports and earnings and things like that. I just know cash flow. You know, he says the money in my pocket, that's all I know. And I can understand that housing, people need to live somewhere. I kind of get that. I kind of feel like that too. I mean, you know, I'm on some of these forums and I'm these groups and I look at quarterly earnings for, I have stocks as well too. I have, Okay. So you, know, you believe in stocks at least though? Like, well, at least I mean, well, it's for, yeah, it's for diversification, not because I really believe in them to get me where I want to. I don't think it's the vehicle that I want to use to get that kind of life that I want to create that ideal life. But it's something that I do to diversify. You know, I talk about diversification a lot on my blog. I would think that if I didn't diversify outside of real estate, I'd probably be a hypocrite because I'm telling everybody, it's nice to have a couple of different assets in different types of classes. So I do invest in stocks, do some of this basic 401k stuff. I also have Roth IRA and I have some stocks in there as well. Let's be honest with you. Sometimes I do think, man, I should just cash it all out and go all in on real estate. And there are times when I think about that. Again, I've seen some people do that. And honestly, they're doing pretty well. For me personally, I don't understand all that stuff very well. Besides anything, I would only invest in index funds and kind of just ride the train like that. And I know historically it's done pretty well. At the same time, it doesn't provide cash flow for me on a monthly basis. It doesn't provide cash flow on a yearly basis. So I don't know at what point I'm done. And I understand this whole fire movement and it's great. And I know my buddy's physician on fire. He's done a fantastic job. If you guys don't know, he kind of announced his retirement just last week. I don't know when this thing will come out, but you know, he's built up a big enough nest egg there. And he, you know, through his portfolio, he expects to be able to live out the rest of his life anyways and, and not consume that amount and live well. For me, again, I think on a monthly basis, just like I think most people do, you just need that monthly check at the beginning. And it, will that cover all of your expenses for the month? Will that cover all expenses for the year eventually? And then you can live pretty well. And so that's why I like real estate because, yeah, you're collecting rent. You're getting cash flow on a monthly basis. It's like a paycheck that comes in that you didn't necessarily have to put time in for like you do as a physician. And you can live off that amount. And that's something that I can understand and comprehend. And when people ask me all the time, they go, you know, how much do you need? What net worth do you need? Or how much do you need in your portfolio so you know when to retire? There are numbers out there like 2 million, 5 million, 10 million, whatever that might be. People talk about the 4%, 3 or 4% rule, right? And some people might have heard about that. If you don't know what that is, look it up. But actually, that's the amount. <laughs> You can pull out three to 4% a year off your portfolio and based on you know previous projections, that should kind of not be fully consumed by the next 30 years. You can live out your life just kind of chipping away at that three to 4% per year, just for inflation. But for me, I just think about this is what I need for every month to live well, you know, whatever that number might be. For some people that might be 10,000, 20,000, 40,000. If I can get that amount 
in monthly income coming in from my rental properties or my passive real estate investments or whatever investments that I make that create cash flow for me. And some of those uh, also in businesses, I might invest in some businesses as well. Then I'm good. You know, then I'm good for the month and I'm good for the year. And I know I have good income coming in and that's not going to hopefully deplete anytime soon. But that's the way I think about it. So currently right now, you obviously blog on PassiveIncomeMD.com. That's your website. Obviously, real estate is big into you. When did you start getting into real estate? When did this, you know, you realize that this was the way in which you're going to take your life, I guess, to the next level? I became an attending. I got my dream job and I thought I was pretty set. And I was just going to go the typical doctor route, work hard, put your time in, and hopefully somewhere around 60 to 65, hopefully you have enough money in the bank to retire. But then about three years in to be an attending, a few things happened politically at work and some of the schedule changes and things like that. And my time was cut and time equals money for me. I do a lot of shift work. So then I realized, oh my gosh, like I'm not in control here. I thought as a physician, yeah, as a doc, you're, you're pretty set. But I was like, okay, I'm not in control of my income. This is crazy. I did not think it'd be like this. So if I'm not in control of my income, where am I going to be in five years? Where am I going to be in 10 years, in 20 years? I mean, I could just sit and wait and do nothing, but that was risking a lot. I mean, I felt like that was risking that medicine was going to be where I wanted it to be in five or 10, whatever. And that, you know, my career and whatever the payments would continue to be the same. And, you know, I could rely on that you know, for the rest of my life. But I realized at that point, okay, you know what, I got to do something different. So I started looking around the hospital, started trying to find other docs that seemed to have it all together. I mean, there were certain docs that, hey, man, they're talking about, you know, I'm in the operating room quite a bit. So I talked to other physicians and yeah, they're like, oh, I just took a family trip for a month to this or that. I'm like, a month? I was like, how <laughs> yeah, are you getting that? That doesn't happen often. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, how are you getting time a month off? Like without pay? Like, what are you doing? Like, why are you able to do this? And I'm picking up extra weekend shifts or extra night shifts to try to cover my time. Like, what are you doing? And a lot of them were creating income outside of medicine. And the common theme, and I found a whole bunch of doctors like this, surprisingly, nobody talks about it, but I found out a lot of them were investing in real estate. And so I was like, okay, this is crazy. I got to find out more about this whole thing. And they were talking about how they were able to build a portfolio of rental properties, or some of them were investing passively, you know, with some other professionals who were creating that income for them like investing in shares of apartment buildings and things like that. And they were able to do, you know, build up enough of these sources that, hey, you know, medicine was a little more optional. Like they didn't need to pick up the extra time. Like regardless of whether they worked or not, a paycheck was coming in every month. Mm. And I was like, I've got to find out more about that. And so I started asking around, started learning about it, started picking things up. And ultimately I started doing it on my own. I love it. And then the rest is history. Yeah, the rest of history. And now I'm trying to teach other people about it. And, you know, I mean, hopefully, I say it's not for everybody. I mean, it's again, some people want to just go the traditional route. And I'm totally on board with that. A lot of people tell me, oh, man, how about the risk? You know, isn't it risky to do all these type of things? But I kind of try to turn that around. I say, look, basically, you're putting all your eggs in one basket, which is yeah. medicine. And like, I always ask people, like, forget all this other stuff. Is medicine going to be better five years, 10 years down the line from where it is today? If you had to guess, like your life as a career in medicine, financially, and where you're at, is medicine going to be in a better place five, 10, 20 years from now? And I get 100% of the responses that I get is that it's going to be worse, right? So I tell people, okay, so you're putting all your eggs in one basket in something that's going, getting worse, right? Like, where's the risk there? I mean, you're putting all your risk in that one bucket. So why, like, is it riskier to try something else and try to create other sources of income? Like what's riskier at the end of the day? And so I kind of put that in people's minds, at least. You know, I agree with that concept. And I also think too, like, is it really secure to be employed by someone also? You know, like there could be so many different things that occur in that situation. Because, you know, oftentimes people say, oh, you know, it's risky to do things on your own or it's risky to go into business by yourself, which is true. It's risky to be an independent contractor, which is true. 
but there's this like inherent thought that there's no risk in being employed by someone. You could be let go anytime. Like you said, medicine in general, you know, it's changing at a dramatic rate. And what was okay now may not be okay in two years, three years, or you may, you know, a department may close, you know? So I agree with you there. You know, I agree with you there. I think you make some really good points. In terms of like renting and having passive income, is there really such a thing as passive, you know, quote unquote passive income? Because I know you got to work hard for this stuff, right? To get like quote unquote cash flow on a monthly basis. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a spectrum. I mean, it's all called passive income. Again, everyone's definition is a little different, but I always say it's like the income is not necessarily proportional to the time you put in. Like as a physician, you know, your time, we're essentially hourly workers, I'd say, in a way. We're probably highly paid hourly workers, but you got to put in the time, you got to see the patient. You got to do the case, whatever it is to get paid, right? With passive income, it's possible that you start making these investments and maybe the hourly amount that you're making per the time you put in the beginning might not be very much, but eventually it's able to kind of grow and grow and grow exponentially. So it's not necessarily linked to the time you put in. And that's why it's powerful, especially as physicians, because we don't have a lot of time outside of this. So we got to try to leverage that time as much as possible. But this whole concept of passive, I mean, nothing's truly completely passive. I mean, you got to at least put in a little bit of time, energy, or money, especially at the beginning to get it going, right? I mean, I think this whole notion of, oh, I just put my money here and then it'll, you know, create this amazing bounty for me in the future, this sort of thing is, I think most of the times that if someone's trying to tell you that, right, they're trying to sell you something, right? You have to be a little cautious, but it's possible that, again, you put in some work up front and that this thing continues to grow over time and it becomes more passive over time. For example, like in real estate, like people talk about, oh man, when you own your own rental properties, like the one thing I worry about, and it's not truly passive is because, oh, you're going to get those calls in the middle of the night. You're going to get called for plumbing issues. That's like the number one objection. Oh, I don't want to get called for plumbing issues or these kind of things, or tenant issues in the middle of the night, especially on a weekend when I'm with my family. The funny thing is, I don't get called for any of that stuff. And the way I've done that is because you get professional management in place, right? You get a barrier and a buffer. I mean, the whole point is that I'm not there to manage my own properties. I mean, some people do, but I have professional management in place that takes care of all that stuff. And yes, I have to make some final decisions when it comes to the bigger stuff, right? I mean, like maybe we have to replace the HVAC system or the roof eventually is you know, that sort of thing. We got to make some bigger repairs. But those are things that are like brought to me after being filtered out. And so really people ask me, how much time do I spend on a monthly basis managing, you know, my various properties? A bunch of them are out of state, right? So I'm not even there with those properties. Mm -hmm. I mean, I tell people it's less than five hours a month. I mean, it's definitely less than five hours a month. And the reason, again, only those five hours because I have to review statements. So I review the monthly statements and I look at them. But beyond that, honestly, I have management help to do that. And Yes, there's a cost to it, but that's part of the cost of doing business. And if I'm happy with the returns outside of that cost, oh man, I'm going for it. It's not passive in that sense when you own your own rental properties, but honestly, like it becomes more and more passive with time. Mm. You know, there's a point where he talks about he had that single family home. He looks at it as one of the worst decisions that he's made. But the next step that he took was he went from a single family house to a 38 unit (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) apartment complex. I think it was something like in the range of like one point, like something million dollars. It was crazy. That's a really epic jump, right? To go from like literally a single family home that I think it was $78,000 down, I think, or $78,000 the house was to go from that straight to one point something million dollars. Like, what are your thoughts on that? That's a huge jump. You know what? It's actually not as huge a jump as people think. I mean, I guess conceptually in your mind, mentally, it feels like a huge jump. Like you have one tenant, one house to managing a building with 38 units and that sort of thing. 
The funny thing is sometimes when the place gets bigger, it actually gets easier to manage because you actually get that professional management in place. And it makes sense, right? With one unit, you have to one get one person. Yeah, it's like you feel kind of like bad having that one professional management in there taking care of one person in one house. But the funny thing is that building, that 38 units, yes, there's 38 units in there, 38 kitchens that can go bad, like 38 toilets that can get, go bad. And you're right. But at the same time, it's all you get professional management in place, then it kind of still makes it scalable. And you can do that. Now, the reason he's also, just so you know, Grant Cardone's a little biased. He's a multifamily guy. He raises money for his own projects for apartment buildings, right? So he's not a single family guy. But I've seen people be successful with single family homes. So I don't want to tell people that it's not possible to be successful with that. There are people, I have a friend of mine who owns 30 single family homes. And he likes it because single family renters tend to be a little bit more stable. They tend to be most likely families. They're going to have a little bit more pride of ownership. And so maybe he feels like, okay, I don't have as much turnover with that or maintenance issues. And so he likes it. He has a management company that manages a bunch of these single family homes at the same time for him. So it's kind of like the same thing. But I can understand the benefits of having multifamily all under one unit, one building. It's scalable. If you have one person or a couple of tenants that are moving out, you don't lose income for the entire place. That's a good once, point. Yeah. Right. So there is some benefit to that with the multifamily space. And you can leverage that and kind of grow. Like if you increase rents for everybody across the board, 3%, I mean, that's a huge jump, right? If you have a building that's a 38 unit, I forgot how much it costs for him, but it increases the, the value of the operating income of the property quite a bit. So there's some scalability there. So people like to do that. And so for me, my own journey, I started with single family homes. I started investing passively as share, you know, investing in shares of apartment buildings. And now I'm still doing a bunch of that because that's like- What, what that's does that actually, mean? What does that mean? You're, you're yeah, so this is actually where real estate does get truly, in my opinion, very, very passive. So there are professional companies, for example. I think the easiest way to do it is maybe if I was going to relate it to you. So let's say I find an apartment building down the street. You know, it's like $6 million, whatever it is, right? Let's say I'm like, okay, that's a little bit much for me to take on myself, but this is a great property. It's in a great area. I know it's going to do well. It's going to create a lot of cash flow but I can't take it down myself. So you know what? I'm okay and I have the knowledge to be able to run this building and do it well, but guess what? I'm gonna bring in a bunch of my doctor buddies here to invest in this thing with me. Now, they're not gonna be doing any other work. They just wanna bring in the capital. They wanna bring in the money. They wanna invest X amount of money. You know, we could all buy this building together. But guess what? Since I'm running the building, running the management, running the, you know, I've done the, the scouting. I also know how this building's gonna operate and run. And my plan for it is, Maybe in five to seven years, we'll you know, get the building, increase the rents and sell it off. For that, I get a little bit of a fee, right? A management fee. And I get a little bit of portion, maybe a little bit extra on the backside. Basically, if you had five people, four people get the same amount, you probably get a little bit higher amount because you are managing. Yeah, so I'm the general partner. I'm considered what's a general partner. They're considered limited partners, but they get to invest alongside me and I get to run the vehicle for them, right? So that's one way I invest a lot as that limited partner. I have these professionals that are finding these amazing deals out there that I personally can't take down myself, but they're like, you know, they got professional management in place. They got everything in place. And I just have to invest a small, you know, portion of money. And then I get a share of that apartment building. And when that apartment building, I get some cash flow as it goes along. And when they sell it, I get a portion of the upside as well. Gotcha. That's investing okay. passively. Because he talks about cash flow a lot. You just mentioned cash flow. And he said that he buys for cash flow, not just appreciation. So, Dr. Peter. Passive Income MD, the guru. Explain what does cash flow mean? What does that mean? Not just appreciation. Explain that. Like, help us out with that. Yeah. So I think when I'm looking for an apartment, like let's say a rental property, 
And I bite with using a loan. I use leverage, right? So let's say easy numbers. And these are not going to be the numbers at all, but just for example, <laughs> sake, right? So I got you. let's say I buy a building, I was like an apartment, like home or whatever. And the mortgage and all the taxes, insurance, and all the expenses that go into it, the maintenance, everything costs me $500 a month. Okay. Right. But I can command a thousand dollars of rent for this. Right. So that every month the renters pay me a thousand bucks, but all the expenses for this whole thing, including HOA, taxes, insurance, mortgage, everything is 500 bucks a month. I've got an extra 500 bucks of cash flow every single month coming in. hundred dollars right? profit. I, mean, I love it. Profit. That would be amazing. Right. Let me get so, that Tesla. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but also what's happening at the same time to that condo or whatever apartment building is, like it's going up in value over time. You hope that the market, right? Just the value of that place. If I were to sell it down the line, five, 10 years down the line, you hope that that property has also increased in value, right? While I'm still getting that cash flow every month, that is called appreciation, the increased value of that place. So when I sell this place, for example, if I decide to sell it, I've gotten cash flow all along. I got that extra 500 bucks in my pocket every single month that I can use for whatever, right? Buy Disneyland tickets. I can, I can buy extra, go out to nice dinners. I can pay my rent, my own rent if I were renting a place, you know, but I can also cash in on the increased value of this property at the end of the day when I go to sell it. So those are two ways that you can make money from real estate. There are other ways as well, but those are just two simple ways. Now, some people, they will actually invest in a property and maybe that they get 500 bucks from their renter and all the expenses are 500 bucks as well. So they've got zero cash flow mm. at the end of the day, but they're okay doing that because they know that number one, the price of this, whatever property is going up over time. So they want to sell it somewhere down the line. So they're still going to make money somewhere down the line. So these are right? people who are living in areas that are up and coming or really expensive areas already. It's, Ex appreciation is always going to go up. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. So let's say me in Los Angeles. It's hard for me to find a property, put down a down payment on it and actually make cash flow because my mortgage is actually pretty high here. And I can't find a renter that will rent high enough to give me that cash flow. But guess what? I know the property in LA is going to continue to skyrocket over time. Mm. San Francisco, New York, these kind of things. So if I hold on to it, I know that eventually down the line, I could probably sell it off and make a good amount once I sell it. But that's banking on what's called quote unquote appreciation. But I'm not making any cash flow from it in the meanwhile. Here's the problem with that. If your tenant happens to leave, right? You've got that high mortgage. You got to pay out of pocket yourself. Right. So you've got no buffer there. Let's say you know, for a lot of these people that actually bought these, let's say now think bigger scale, they bought these big apartment buildings and there's no cash flow coming from that. They've got no buffer, but whatever happens economically, the market drops, that area kind of goes bad. Then they, now all of a sudden they got tons of these empty vacant units and they've got a huge mortgage and they can't pay it. So what happens? Now they're stuck either paying it out of personal assets or guess what? At some point, if they can't pay it at all, you know, the bank will foreclose on it, right? Mm -hmm. But the building, you know, maybe it's gone up in value, but you know, maybe they have to sell it, but that sort of thing. So they have no buffer. It's all about that buffer. But for some other people, let's say that you know, they've got a lot of that buffer. They've got a lot of cash flow coming in every single month. So if the place doesn't get tenanted, so if some of the, maybe the vacancy goes down a little bit, well, that chips into maybe their cash flow every month, but they still are positive so that they can pay it every month. They're not worried about losing it or having to dip into their personal savings. No, that, that makes, makes a lot of sense now. And now a word from our sponsor. Meet Dr. Arthur Cummings. He's a busy ophthalmologist practicing all the way in Dublin, Ireland. Recently, he finished physician CEO. Check out what got him to jump on the transatlantic flight to participate in this program. My initial response would simply be just do it. This is one of those programs that is so good. It's very likely to be 
the best education you've ever received. And you realize then as a physician, how little we really know about our businesses, even though we're running businesses that are quite large. And the level of training is so fantastic. The education is so good. The faculty is immaculate and you're in a group of people who are like-minded. So just the entire environment is an amazing learning experience and really a good incubator for growing your practice. So if you're a physician who's looking to start your own venture or even lead your practice or department, then you can't afford to miss this opportunity. Class is filling up. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. So basically your goal right now for you is we're dumbing it down or making it Mm -hmm. easier for everybody to understand this so that although your rents are a thousand and all of your expenditures or I guess the liabilities that you have are $500, you want enough times to get that $500 multiple times so that you can basically, am I assuming, live off of that so that you don't necessarily have to work because you have to, you work because you want to. And you may even necessarily be able to parse down and decrease the amount of times you work before you even get to retirement. Am I assuming that's kind of what you're... That's right, exactly. So, you know... And, and these stocks, obviously stocks, you can't touch that until, for the most part, if you retire, if you have some type of tax deferred account, basically. Yeah, I guess it's kind of the similar concept. So I'm looking for that extra couple hundred bucks from each unit that add up to give me a good amount of cash flow. For example... You know, I have one unit, I have like a house in Indianapolis that was renting a little bit higher, but the expenses came up and now it's about 250 a month that I get from it every month. Not huge, but it's an extra 250 bucks every month. And I know people look at that like, dude, 250 bucks, what am I going to do with that? I can't live off of that. Well, let's imagine you have 10 of those, 20 of those, 40 of those, right? You start getting apartment buildings that everyone starts to produce a little 250 to 400 bucks extra cash. Well, guess what? That's $250 less I can work in the hospital mm-hmm. every single month. And that's what I've been talking about when I talk about gradual retirement. I mean, my goal is not to retire completely. And I've never wanted to do that. I mean, I actually really enjoy what I do. But my goal is to work less and less and less as that other cash flow comes in to the point where I find this really, really sustainable place. And actually, that's where I am today. It's funny because <laughs> it's amazing because, you know, for a while, I was doing gradual, gradual retirement. And at a certain point, I was like, look, I have the cash flow. Why don't I just drop to where I wanted to go? And so I did that a couple months ago. And now I work a little less than 20 hours every single month. And that's my happy place. That's my happy place. And I love being at work. I enjoy being that during that time. I've really, at this point, tried to get rid of all the nights and weekends that I'm working during days. And that's been an amazing thing for me because I'm there. I'm more present with my family. I have the energy. You know, I'm no longer these post-call days where I'm in a haze for, you probably know. And, and just for the record, yeah. you're not in your 50s. You're not in your 60s. You I'm 42 years old. Right. Now I'm 42 years old. And so you can no. have this life now. Yes. And so, <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm trying to show. It's not like I'm amazing or I'm awesome. And in fact, I tell people, man, I'm pretty dumb too. I mean, I'm not super sophisticated <laughs> yeah, when it comes to this shit. stuff. I'm, I'm not like, I'm not <laughs> like super sophisticated. I go into like boggleheads. I go into sometimes the white coat investor, you know, Facebook group or physicians on fire Facebook group. And I look at some of the stuff people are talking about. And I'm like, man, you guys are amazingly wickedly smart. I don't understand anything you're talking about in terms of all these like you know, these projections and, you know, PE ratios and all this stuff is amazingly smart. And I'm all for you, you know, I'm all for it. But for me, I just think, hey, how much do I need every month to live? And how do I get that cash flow? Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to live there. They need to rent it out for X amount and do my expenses and all that stuff. Are they less than that amount? And if they are, then guess what? That's cash flow. And that's amount I can, you know, live on. And the cool thing is that cash flow tends to increase with time. Because you have to increase rents. Yeah, you increase rents. The areas tends to increase. And honestly, they're paying off the mortgage for you as you go too. And eventually that'll be all debt-free. That's the way I want to go. And that becomes all just pure cash flow. 
So I'm just like chipping away and month by month, like getting a little bit more, getting a little bit more. And then the next unit, you know, the next couple of properties that I buy, and that just kind of jumps up my cash flow a little bit more. And so that's all I'm trying to do. That's my game plan. And it's been that game plan all along. You know, it's interesting you mentioned having an economic downturn because that happened to Grant Cardone. So he mentioned that in 2007, we all know what happened. He got beat up. I guess everyone got beat up. He got beat up, but not as bad as everyone else. But basically, I guess similar to what happened to Dave Ramsey, the banks made their calls for money. People who had loans out, they wanted payment a lot sooner as opposed to when their original loan date was, mainly because I guess his net worth had increased so much, I guess, or something like that. It was some type of technical issue that they wanted their money back. But long story short, he says that he wasn't affected as much as other people, mainly because his rentals were still being rented. He was still cash flowing. He wasn't over leveraged in that arena. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, again, it's all about that buffer. And I'll tell you a story about it. I know a physician, he's been like a mentor to me in this real estate space. He is about 70 years old. And I've learned about his whole real estate income and that sort of thing. Well, he's got now several buildings all over this area. And he actually just did it slow and steady. And they're all paid off. They're all paid off. And all he gets is a rental check every single month from these properties. You know, some people actually takes cash from them because that's all they're going to pay with. But he gets it every single month. He makes the rounds and collects his cash and his rental income and his checks. He's got no mortgage to the bank at all. He's got to pay his property taxes every year. But it doesn't matter what the stock market does. It doesn't matter what the economy does. He's got this huge buffer of cash flow that honestly, he doesn't even think about it. He just gets checks. And so it doesn't matter. In the 2000, I asked him how he did in 2007, 2008 with the whole crash. And he's like, yeah, I guess on paper, maybe some of his properties, the value of them went down, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't affect him at all if that value of those properties went down. Because honestly, he's just still getting checks mm -hmm. every single month. People have to live somewhere, right? And if it comes down to survival, people will give up the vacations. They'll, They'll give up the, the fancy cars. Yeah. They'll give up the subscription of Netflix, maybe, right? But <laughs> these kind of things, right? But they have to live somewhere. So they will pay their rent and they'll pay for food. And they just won't go out to fancy restaurants, but they'll maybe, you know, they'll pay ramen or whatever. But they'll still pay for somewhere to live. And so he said during that time, honestly, he saw his stock portfolio take this humongous dip and dive and everybody was freaking out around him. But he's like, you know what? My lifestyle did not change one bit because I'm still getting that rental income. And so that's the kind of life that I want to live as well, too. That sure, the stock market is fun to watch. And I actually enjoy kind of seeing Disney go up and down or this or that, right? Or Netflix or Tesla or whatever it is. And it's kind of fun. It's like kind of gambling to me. At my heart, I enjoy that kind of stuff as well, right? But I don't want it to affect my life on a daily basis, my ability to take care of my family, to pay for their you know, education, pay for our daily expenses and things like that. And so I'm all for it. And I can understand why during that time and when the next one is, I don't think I'll be affected by it. And that's my hope, my goal. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that I thought was really interesting is this discussion that he had with Vlad about renting, but not owning. So he claims that he does not own any of his private residencies where he lives at. He just rents. And where he lives, as a matter of fact, I think he uses it as a business deduction. He kind of pays. I forget how it works, but either way, He's saying that he doesn't believe in owning your own property that you should rent. He thinks that it's one of the worst investments that you can make. The house is for the bank and that's not for you. That house is not for you. So what are your thoughts on that, man? You think you should just be renting and we shouldn't be owning? <laughs> you know, I first heard that when I read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He puts the house, your own house in the liabilities column. And that was kind of counter to everything I'd heard. Everyone talks about your home is your best investment. When you come out, you want to buy a good home and that that's will increase the value. Raised. That's how I was raised too. And I think, I mean, I'll be honest with you, my folks, their house actually ended up saving them when it came to retirement. Not because it's an investment, 
you know, because it was like a savings account for them. They, they just like dutifully paid it every single month. They paid the mortgage and eventually that house had some value, got paid off and they were able to sell that home and you know use that money to kind of help with their retirement. The thing is, honestly, they made no money on that house over time. They made no money, but it was basically a savings account for them. And I'm glad it was because my father necessarily wasn't the best with finances. And he tried to invest in the stock market. He tried to do these different types of things. And a lot of them, uh, he invested in some biotech companies that he should, probably shouldn't have made. None of those materialized. But guess what? The no money in his house. Or anything like that. Yeah, stuff like that. His, <laughs> at least the money that he put into the house at least was there for him at the end of the day that he was able to cash in on. So it was a good savings account for him. But honestly, it wasn't a great investment. Now, I understand what they're saying is because, yeah, you got to live somewhere. Even me. I mean, I talk, people talk about it. People love to talk about how their house has gone up in value. And it's kind of a fun thing, right? Especially when you live in Los Angeles, like I do. I bought it in 2000, at the very end of 2011. So obviously I bought it a good time. I got lucky. Bought it 2011 and now it's appreciated. It's more than doubled in value. Oh, wow. Worth, yeah, but it's worth quite a bit. But you know what? It's money just sitting here in the wall. It doesn't mean anything to me. Okay, there's a caveat. I can use the money. I can pull money out in terms of a loan. I can do that like a HELOC, home equity loan and use that money elsewhere. But in terms of the actual building, it does nothing for me. It doesn't produce income for me. It doesn't produce cash. I can't live differently. I have to pay it, you know, this X amount, you know, thousands per month. Because if I don't pay it, the funny thing is, even though it's my home, they take it if I just stop paying for it, the bank will take it, right? And I'll lose all the equity that I had in it. So I kind of get what they're saying in terms of liabilities. And it kind of made sense to me when I actually met this physician. He's a surgeon. And he was living in Beverly Hills. And I thought you were going to say me. No, yeah, yeah. No, he was living, I'm not in Beverly Hills. No, he, you're not Beverly Hills yet. But he was living in Beverly Hills. I went to his house one time. My whole family went over there. And we were hanging out with them. And you know, it was like nice home. And I was like, this, this house is amazing. And I was like, hey, you know, and he was like, yeah, the house is great. But you know, I'm thinking about, I wish I could update the kitchen. And I was like, well, why don't you update the kitchen, right? I was like, you're home. He's like, oh, no, I rent it. And I was like, wait, what? He was an ENT surgeon. His wife's an anesthesiologist. And I'm like, okay, um, he's not a young guy, a younger guy. I mean, he's been out for years. I'm like, why have you bought your own home? This is kind of crazy to me. He goes, oh, no, I don't want to buy my own home. I'd rather rent it. And I was like, okay, you got to explain this to me. I don't get it. And he said, all right, well, what I did was instead of putting down a down payment on my own home, he's like, what I did is I bought a whole bunch of properties in Texas. He bought like 10 properties, eight to 10 properties in Texas. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, they all cash flow. So guess what? The cash flow from those properties, from those rental units, I can rent wherever I want, rent free. So he's like, I rent to Beverly Hills. He goes, do you know how much money I'd have to put down to buy a home here in Beverly Hills? That mm. money would just be sitting in I the see. walls of this home. So what I did is I have rentals all in Texas right now that are making me cash flow every single month. These tenants are all paying the mortgage for me. And they're all increasing in value as we go, right? I could sell off one of those if I wanted to. I could do whatever I wanted. But that cash flow rents this home for me in Beverly Hills. And guess what? Whenever there's an issue, I'm not paying any HOA dues. I'm not paying any property taxes. I'm not paying whatever. He pays his own rental insurance. But he's not I'm paying these big rent, you know, mortgage insurance for this. If there's an earthquake, something happens to this house, and the house goes down in value. He's like, that's fine with me. I'm a renter. If the dishwasher breaks, the roof leaks, so that I call my landlord. He goes, I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. And I get to rent where I want. You know, he goes, the price for me to pay for this is super expensive. I would never be able to even, I mean, the mortgage would be so expensive to pay. And I was like, it got me thinking. I'm like, man, that is crazy. That's the way that it, it's definitely not the traditional way of thinking. It's not the traditional way. And the funny thing is I talked to my wife about that. She's like, no way. I want my own house. <laughs> I want my own thing. 
I want the security of it because there is an emotional component to having your own home. I get it. You know, the fact that we can put whatever we want in here on the walls. We don't have to worry about that. We can paint something whatever color we want without worrying about it. I mean, there's an emotional component to that. And so I get that. There's a feeling of security. And the funny thing is, you know, I run a business that helps physicians buy homes, right? That's part of what I do, curbside real estate. I help physicians get into their dream homes. And so I understand that whole emotional component to it, that people want, you know, that security of having their own place. And they're, you know, this is kind of a rite of passage. You work so hard as a physician to get where you want. And part of your dream is that you want to buy a home. All your friends have been buying homes for the last 10 years. You're sitting in, you know, renting a one bedroom apartment or whatever for so long. You want to have a place that's just your own. And I get that point of it. But I think people have to change their perspective on it, which is they have to realize it's a luxury good. It's not an investment. Like you have to think about it differently. And some people say, oh, I'm going to buy this place. And you know, when I move out of here, I'm going to rent it out. The funny thing is what you buy and what you rent out necessarily as an investment may not be the same thing, may not be the best thing, right? You know, it's funny you mentioned that because he mentioned that like we're moving into an environment where we are all being renters, basically. You know, like, I mean, nowadays you could even rent clothes. You know, you can obviously rent cars, you can Uber, you can, you know, lift your way or you can rent whatever it may be. But I think he has a point where he's saying that we are getting to that point where we are just like, whatever it may be, we use it for a temporary period of time and we are using our cash flow for other things that are more important. I think that's the gist of what you're saying, right? Exactly. I mean, I know that a lot of these people, they buy these humongous homes. Then once their kids move out or something like that, they want to just sell the home again, right? Or, you know, they outlive, you know, your home. You're like living it. You're like, oh, this is a perfect home. The school district changes or you want to have different needs. And you're like, oh, crap. Now I got to get out of this home and move to another home. And then that comes with all the closing costs that come with that. And so I understand why now a lot of people, especially with Airbnb, they're getting used to kind of living in other homes. There's these home exchange companies now where People live for different, you know, a couple months in different areas. People are trying to, they love the flexibility. So flexibility and freedom is now becoming more and more part of our society. And so I could see, you know, a time in the future where people literally just have their homes for, you know, short periods of time and then move on. And they're not so attached to that feeling of having that plot of land. I get it though. I mean, it's again, it feels good. I will tell you emotionally, it feels good knowing that this home is mine, that there never could be like a landlord. They get a letter saying, guess what? We're going to move back into our home. And so you guys are going to have to move out in the next two months. Or re- there is some rent by 5%. Or, or increasing like rent by 5%. There is some security in that. So I get that aspect of it. But at the same time, in terms of financially, I don't pretend. This is not the best financial decision I made, right? And I know that when I do this, there's an opportunity cost. Because I'm doing this, you know, I'm not putting my money to better use somewhere else. So I think you just have to know going into it, what situation you're putting yourself into it. I mean, I have a family member who was just coming out of training out of his fellowship. Same story. He's like, okay, guess what? I found the perfect home and this is what I'm going to pay for it. And it's like $1.8 million just coming out of fellowship, right? And that's normal around here. In LA, that's a starting place for a decent sized home. And he wants to start his home. And I was like, why do you want that home? And he's like, look, you know, I've always wanted to buy a home and this is kind of what I wanted to do. And I did the finance. I actually ran the numbers with them. And I said, it's not, I have nothing against you buying a place, but look what's happening with this home. This is how much you're going to have to put down. This is what you're going to have to pay for. This is how much you have to work just to pay for that mortgage coming out. You're not going to have any money left over for investments. You're putting yourself in a situation where you're going to be working for your student loans and your home. And that's it, right? And you're not really setting yourself for the future. So we did kind of an analysis for him. And at the end of the day, he was like, you know what? Forget it. I want to have a life where I have the option in mm-hmm. 15, 10, 15, 20 years to work less, to retire. Yeah, that you have all these things. 
And then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, so what's more important to you? Having that one place that you can come in and have the extra place, maybe your man cave, which is important, or having that option in 10 to 15, 20 years. And he's like, I'd rather have that option and that freedom. And so I said, okay, then this is what we're going to do. And he ended up renting a place that was much smaller and he's going to start putting his money to use elsewhere. And that was him. And that was what's important to him. But I think these conversations have to happen. And I think that's important. Well, that's the reason why I have you on this show. And speaking of being able to help people run the numbers and do what they want to do and help them, you know, get to that lifestyle of having more cash flow, you're not only just passive income MD, you're Dr. Peter Kim. Tell us about this conference that you're doing. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've been talking about this stuff for a while about real estate. And a lot of people, they're just like, look, I want to hear these stories. I want to meet people who have actually done it. Are there truly people who have done these type of things? I want to learn about real estate. I got it. Actually, it's funny. I got a Facebook message yesterday from a former resident friend of mine. And he was like, okay, you kind of got me thinking about real estate. Where do I start? I mean, that's a big question, right? Where do I start? I'm like, well, you got to start reading about it. You got to start learning about it. But I was like, you know what? What if I could create some, at least event that people could come, whether they're at all stages of the game, but maybe you just started thinking about real estate to somebody who's a little bit more advanced and you could just kind of get basic overview of everything and meet people and network and see opportunities. And so that's kind of what I decided to do. I put, decided to put together a one-day event. It's going to be in October 26th. It's going to be in Los Angeles, California. I know for some other people from the East Coast, it might be inconvenient, but I tell you, come on out. Come on out Saturday. Enjoy the Sunday in Los Angeles. Enjoy Friday in Los Angeles. What better place to be, right? It's going to be amazing weather. And come on out, and we're going to spend the whole day learning about different opportunities in real estate to create cash flow to really create that ideal life of financial freedom. And so we're going to have other physicians out there who have done these type of things. You'll be able to hear their stories. You'll be able to hear their strategies, what resources they use. We're going to be talking about taxes and asset protection and how to kind of maximize those things. Because we all know as a physician, those are killers for us. Taxes, I mean, that's a huge, yeah, on a cash flow basis, that's the biggest impact on all of our lives. But we're not actually taking the right strategies to really minimize that. And these are strategies that the government has also, they put in place as incentives for you guys for everyone. But we just don't know how to tap into that. And then there's asset protection. How do you make sure that all your properties and your, you know, your other assets are, are protected so that if anything happens, you and your family are protected? So we're going to be talking about those type of things too. We're going to have the white cone investor come out, talk about how he's been able to balance his portfolio because now he's gone a little bit into real estate. I mean, most people are like, he's just a stocks guy, but he's not. He's diversified. He's got money in his stocks, in his portfolios, his businesses, and his real estate portfolio, which he's building up. And so how does he balance all that and put all that together into a you know, portfolio for him, for him and his family? So we're going to be talking about that. And again, a lot of other people in the space are all getting together and it's an opportunity for us to learn and really figure out how to take action. And it's being run by physicians, taught by physicians, helping other physicians. That's the best part about it that I love. So Dr. Peter, Passive Income MD, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate having this conversation with and about Grant Cardone, because I think he takes really interesting concepts about real estate that I think the normal, traditional physician like me, like how you were years ago, just aren't used to thinking about things. And I think this was a good example of you know, how you can think outside the box and really get the financial freedom that you know, we all want, but maybe kind of doing and trading time for hours is not necessarily going to get you there. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Again, the point is to think differently. And I think that's what Grant Cardone some of these other thinkers that get you to do. doesn't mean everything they do you should follow, but at least look at different opportunities and there are people doing different things all the time. So at least kind of look around and see what they're doing and figure out exactly what works for you and your family. I love it, man. I love it. We got to do this again. Cool. Thanks a lot. See you next time.